Summer camp is a magic place where kids discover who they are because they have the freedom to explore on their own. Y Camp at Horse Thief Reservoir is a sleepaway camp in the heart of Idaho's wilderness. Each summer, campers make friends, build new skills, and learn to love the outdoors through activities like canoeing, archery, zip lining, rock climbing, campfires, and more. Registration for Y Camp at Horse Thief Reservoir is open. Financial assistance is available. Learn more at ycampidaho.org. They were the heroes from the future. Teenagers protecting the universe from those that would sow the seeds of chaos. Each had unique powers and abilities. And though they often had their differences, they came together to save the day as the Legion of Superheroes. Now you can be a part of their adventures and learn the history of the future in the Legion Clubhouse. This week on the Legion Clubhouse, we celebrate 250 issues of Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes. Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, number 249. Capital Crimes of the Chemical Conqueror. Published March 1979. Written by Jerry Conway with art by Joe Stanton. Synopsis. Mantis Morlo returns, and he's up to his old chemoid tricks. Before we get to uh, Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes 250, Matthew, first we need to follow up on a story from our last episode where mm-hmm. there was a muck monster running a slime in the sewers. See, it should have said a slime must monster running a muck, but I already muck, said a muck want, uh, once already, and you don't say it twice because that's how you ruin everything. I don't know. But I mean, we need to go and figure out what's going on with the slime dude. And so we got to go s- see the capital crimes of the chemical conqueror. Jerry Conway story here. I will say, yes. though, the art is very different because I went back to say, okay, w- did uh, it felt like to me when I opened up this issue that, oh, wait, it felt like there was a kind of a jump in story. And I had to go back the, to the previous is- issue just to make sure that it was, um, you know, Brainiac and uh, Sunboy being mm-hmm. captured by the, the sewer monster. And man, the minute you flip back or you flip forward from two four, or, uh, sorry, 248 to 249, the art style is incredibly different. Yeah, and that, I mean, that is an example of a good inker versus a not really so well-picked inker because Dave Hunt was inking Joe Staten on 248. It looked pretty solid. Well, I mean, we commented a couple of times during the episode that it was pretty good stuff. And then this returns us to good old Jack Abel. Well, and, so what else has Jack Abel done? Has he did he do like a bunch of the scary horror stuff in the in the 1970s? I think we've talked about uh, Jack Abel before. Jack Abel is he's one of those inkers that I always noticed. I recognize the name because mm-hmm. for my money, there's a lot more Jack Abel in his inking than anything else. Um, I remember Jack Abel mostly at Marvel worked with uh, Gene Colan. He did a really good run on um, Iron Man mm, where okay. he was inking Colan. But the thing about it is when you're inking Colan, you know, having a little bit of your style to put on there and go, yeah, whoop da bah, that kind of works. Whereas Jack Abel's style is a little more Silver Age. Well, and that's uh, what I, well, than, I don't. And Joe Staten's pencils. Well, and my, I guess my concern would be I'd say he's more a little bit more Bronze Age because as I look at his his stuff, you know, he was the quote-unquote embellisher, which I guess is what you call an inker, um, on Tomb of Dracula, which was right. the introduction of Blade. And so, cool, you know, yeah. 
Yeah. So when I think about Jack Abel and seeing these inks, it kind of reminds me of that horror uh, comics. Apparently, he also did Master of Kung Fu and some other things. Over on DC, he was an embellisher on um, Kurt Swan's Legion of Superheroes. Uh, the adventure days. Yeah, in the adventure days and also Superman and, of course, here in the pages of, of Superboy. But it is a very drastic jump. It is very much yeah. like going from uh, Wizard of Oz to uh, Chinatown in terms of, you know, the contrast and the shadows that are thrown everywhere in this issue. It's a bad fit. Abel and Staten I don't know if it's a bad not... fit. It's just very different. I will say Abel and Staten are a bad fit. And it's not that Abel is a bad anchor because I feel like his work with Swan works. But this issue just really doesn't for me. Mm. Well, uh, at some point, Brainiac uh, discovers that the slime monsters mm-hmm. are injecting slime people with from outer space. Yeah, they're they're injecting people with like uh, chemical shocks to the system. Mm. Chemical Shock to the System is my favorite Rage Against the Machine album, mm. I think. Okay. Uh, he goes back to the Legion headquarters because Sun, Sun Boy is taken out uh, yes. pretty much the same way that that uh, Shadow Lass was. Mm-hmm. And he starts to come up with some plans and formulations, but uh, uh, Monel is having none of that. He's like, no way, man, I'm not doing anything, but I'm going to stay here and help my woman who is in a coma. And you really can't do anything when she's in a coma. So that's a lot of help you got going on there, Monel. Monel's just a dope. Yeah, I'm telling you, Monel is Bob Cobb. Bob Cobb is just kind of a dopey idiot. Ooh, hit my woman. Well, and the thing that really bothers me about this is this is Monel, right? He's a former Legion leader. He's Superboy level powerful, and he's like, I thought I heard someone cry out, dude. You have super (laughs) hearing. You have X-ray vision. Look, well, look but and see, yes, but you know, part of your X-ray vision is is not working if you have a lead line building, and that's what the other Legion members find out when they go to check on R.J. Brand because apparently they got a secret message from his headquarters, and when they bust in, they find everything is just coated in slime, and R.J. Brand has disappeared and gone. Yeah, it's interesting that R.J. Brand didn't have a chemical shock to the system. Yeah, that's really weird, right? Yeah. But then Brainiac figures out that, hey, if I take this gun with me to wherever the monster is, uh, I'll take care of this toot sweet, which really kind of concerns me because as much pseudo science that we got in the Silver Age and then sliding into the Bronze Age with DC Comics, especially with Flash Comics and Flash Facts and all that stuff. I'm really surprised that Brainiac really does not follow the scientific method. He just really just comes to conclusions. He's like, well, this and this. So it must be this. And you you see that he he does some observations and some questions. He doesn't really do any research, I'm guessing, because of his uh, 12th level intellect uh, yep. that he's got the entire, uh, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica in his head because, you know, Wikipedia hadn't been invented yet. Wikipedia um, Galactica. But he goes from his research to he doesn't even create a hypothesis he just jumps right to his conclusion he doesn't do any tests he doesn't do any analysis he's just like well a plus b equals c that's the way it's got to be and so it's really weird and it may just be because brainiac is the smartest member of the legion of superheroes and maybe one of the smartest people in the universe but it's very odd and I, i guess maybe it's taken this long for me to really realize that brainiac doesn't really do 
any real scientific research. He just is like, well, this is the way it is. Well, when I was young, somebody once told me, it may have been Stephen King, uh, that genius is the ability to go from A to D without needing B and C. And I wonder if what they're going for here is the implication that Brainiac is so brilliant that he's run the 1,455,000 probabilities in his head and come to the right conclusion, the one world where they can beat Thanos. I mean, uh, beat up the slime creature from outer space. And they're trying to show us he's so brilliant that we cannot even understand how his 12th dimensional brain mind works and how he can go immediately from shock to the system to giant space bazooka that I have lying around. Yeah, that I just happened to be making last week. But bazooka, uh, uh, something is wrong with Brainiac 5. Well, I guess the the problem that I'm having, and again, I, I, I totally agree with you that, you know, he's so smart that we don't have to do these things. Mm-hmm. But he knows for an absolute certainty, like there is a non- non 100 percent chance that his idea is going to work 100 percent. And that's not even I mean, even theories, even ideas are not going to be 100 percent perfect. 60 percent of the time it works every time. Yeah, I don't know. I just have a real problem uh, with with Brainiac just looking at a microscope and going, well, it's a good thing I have a, a giant gun here so that I can go and blow this thing up that I planned for six months ago or whatever that's going on. It's but just, keep in mind that it's, what it's bad. Saw, it's bad storytelling. It is. But what he saw in that microscope would have led him to the conclusion that this was, in fact, one of Mantis Morlo's chemoids, which well, the Legion has faced before back why in the didn't, adventure days. Why didn't he not? Uh, why didn't he see that when he was looking at Shadowlass and make that conclusion? Because something is wrong with Brainiac 5. Well, and you're right. It is it is uh, Mantis Morlo. Hey, kids, dear, dear Legion of Clubhouse members. You remember Mantis Morlo, a comic from 12 years ago or what? Probably like four months ago or something that we that we looked yeah. at. But if you don't remember who Mantis Morlo is too bad, I guess you're not a real comic book fan. They give you a, a click back to look for Adventure 363. It's interesting I mean, that you say to go look back mm-hmm. because. We are only starting in the at this time in the comic book stores have probably only been around as as far as comic book stores since maybe within the last five years of this issue within this issue being published. Right. So they're not widespread. And even though we go back to the mid 60s when people were doing, um, you know, uh, uh, mail in, you know, hey, we've got a mail in for our catalog of comics that we have and you can buy them kind of stuff. Comic shops really weren't this place for buying old back issues for quite a while, I want to say. And even then, it, let's just say that you're a kid that's all hep on this story, which what's wrong with you? Uh, and then you go like, oh, my gosh, who's this bald headed guy with the goggles and the the uh, Amazo robot? I need to go and read Adventure Comics 363, I think it's going to be really hard to find a 12-year-old issue in 1979. I don't know that it would be. I mean, comic book stores have been around for probably closer to a decade and a half at this point. The earliest ones were like 66, 67, 68. And in the back issues, you'll actually see... um, Yeah, that's what I said. It's like uh, right away for our, our catalog. 
Yeah, Bob Bell did, did that as early as like 1970, or maybe even before that. But I would say that comic book stores, while not, you are correct, I don't think that they're widespread. I think that this is the point where comic book stores are becoming a thing. This is oh, almost yeah, most like- definitely at this point. Yeah, no, most definitely at this point. But at the same time, having a large section of back issues is still, I think, going to be relatively rare. I remember when I went to the uh, comic book shop that was across the street from Washburn University when I was driving. This would have been like 84, 85. I remember that they had a section of back issue comics, and that store had been around for quite some time. But their collection of back issue comics went back to maybe 1980. And then there was another comic book store a couple blocks away that, again, their stuff maybe went back to 1979, but they only had like five or six years worth of back issue comics. And again, it could have just been because of, of you know, the um, availability. But it, it, to me, it really seemed like if you were wanting to go and get comics from pre-1975, that you were going to have a tough time doing it. There was a comic book shop in Salina, Kansas in 1983. Yeah, I'm uh, sure. And? Oh, oh okay. I, I, I'm not sure what you're saying. I mean, well, you said there saying... was a comic book shop in 1983. And I'm like, okay, what, what, what? I mean, I, I was saying that I, I was aware of comic book shops in, in the Topeka area in the mid 80s. And those had been around for several years. So I'm not saying I, that there weren't comic book shops. I think I'm, I, I am disagreeing with your premise that people would not be able to find Adventure 363 at this point in time. Easily? Now, easily? Let me ask you that. Is it easily that you can find a, a well, that, that, that copy? I don't know. But I don't think it's going to be as difficult as you're saying. I'm going to say it's probably, I'm going to say it's difficult. I'm going to say on a level of, of 1 to 10 that, that finding a copy in 1979 of a 12-year-old comic is on the difficulty level of a 7. I think that that overstates the matter. I mean, that's that's fine. Maybe some other people listening will will, uh, weigh in on this. Uh, Mm. A lot of it's going to be dependent upon where you live. Certainly, if you live in New York City, maybe finding this issue is, is super, super easy. But I bet if you live in Ohio, I bet if you lived in Colorado, I bet if you lived in uh, Arizona. If you lived in Colorado, it would be super easy because Mile High Comics is in Colorado and they've been around since 1960. But I bet <laughs> it's going to be much, much ha- harder to find it in those locations than than, you know, a major metropolis. Mm-hmm. So I I wonder, though, and this is what I really wanted to talk about in this section, not whether Matthew uh, had a comic book shop in Salina in 1983 or not. But are we is this kind of the. Is this kind of the introduction or is the are these kinds of things almost gatekeeping in a sense? I know it's saying, hey, kids, if you want to find out more, this is where this guy first appeared. But previous times that we would see a villain appear, it was always like, here's a one page panel or here's a real quick bit about this guy. So that that if you're reading this new, that you know who he is. And this seems to be a way of saying, we don't got time for that. If you don't know who he is, too bad. <laughs> I, I, I don't agree that it says that. But I think that um, the, the beginning of the Marvel Universe in 61, 62 is really the beginning of that. Here's just a footnote. See if you can find the back issue mm-hmm. era. Mm-hmm. So 
Now, DC was definitely behind Marvel in, you know, embracing heavy-duty interlinked continuity, as we've seen in the Legion books going up to this point. I mean, the Legion really started embracing continuity and, you know, moments of, hey, remember this guy in about 1972-73. So when it, what it really comes down to is I think that the Legion is definitely behind the curve on this. But yeah, this is the beginning of what would eventually become the are you even a real fan if you don't yeah. remember Mantis Morlow yeah. process. Yeah, and that's that's kind of what I kind of felt as I as I read this because it's like, well, yeah, I'm familiar. We read this and I know about the the Kimoids and his his uh, space station in space. Uh, that's why it's called a space station. Um, but at the same time, it just felt very dismissive. Like here is this super minor guy that I think appeared in one issue and didn't even have a, a part two. And it's just like, such a toss away guy that it just felt like we don't got time to explain this to you because my chemoid has to punch Saturn girl in the face and send her flying. But that's the thing though, too. He gets dispatched in two pages. Oh yeah. I, I mean, he's like literally, he's, he is literally on, he's got one, two, three, four, five panels. He has got five panels in this entire story. Yep. I think that his appearance here is really, uh, to kind of set up, a little bit more foreshadowing that something is wrong with Brainiac five because Brainiac literally figures it out, walks in, shoots him down and says, if you'll excuse me, I have something more important to do. And all of the legionnaires are like, what? Well, I mean, and, but that just seems like a Brainiac kind of way of doing things. Right. Almost. Mm, uh, I don't, I don't think I mean, so we've seen, point. we've seen Brainiac be a jerk before. This issue is really pushing it. And that last panel makes me think that we are supposed to come away with this worried about Brainiac 5. We're supposed to wonder, why is he being so rude? Why are the Legionnaires so shocked? What's going on here? So that when next issue rolls around and a thing happens, that this is foreshadowing. It is your quality, your key to quality literature. But more importantly, it's really hastily done awkward foreshadowing in the second part of a story that doesn't literally it doesn't have anything to do with the previous story, including, I don't know where RJ brand went. Where's well, RJ and that brand? was, that's my question is, you know, Santa girl, they're all down in the sewers and Santa girl is like, I sense, I sense a mind. And then you're like, Oh, okay. I assume that's RJ brand. And then she goes around the corner and we never see RJ brand in this issue. Yep. Because this story is all about that final panel of dun, dun, dun. Brainiac five got a gun. Eh, I guess. I mean, if that's what you're supposed to take away from it, that's not what I get. A, that's not what I take away from it. I, I take away that Brainiac's a jerk. And uh, because people aren't doing what he says, he's got better things to do with his See, time. That's, that's not this Bronze Age Brainiac. I think you're taking an expectation of a later Brainiac because he has been, you know, vaguely a team player. I mean, he's a little snotty, but yeah. he's not this rude and hasn't ever been this rude on a regular basis without there being mitigating circumstances. Yeah. And again, he's busy working on whatever project he's working on, you know, until we get to the next issue. And that's probably part of the problem is when you when we look at what happened back in whatever issue, um, the the one that um, 239, not Monel, but uh, Ultra Boy was Ultra accused Boy. of killing, killing Ann Rand. Yeah. 239. Um, that really should have just jumped to this next to this next issue should have jumped to the 250 issue instead of and having it was supposed to like six months of story in between that 
in hindsight, you look back and go, oh, yeah, okay, I can see where you're going with that. But on the other hand, if you don't know anything, if you haven't read the next issue, it's just like Brainiac's just a jerk is how it all comes off. Not sitting there going, huh, Brainiac is usually the life of the party. He's usually the one out there doing the Patusi because he studied his his ancient Earth history. Um that's that unfortunately is the side effect of the fact that we've already read these issues before and know, you know, know what's coming up. And so that's that's kind of where I disagree with you. It's explicitly there in the text, though. I mean, they are saying Brainiac's actions are shocking to the Legionnaires. They are setting us up a little bit more. And, you know, there was some of it well, last issue, too. And I, I that wonder there's something wrong with Brainiac 5. I wonder because so much stuff can be added in afterwards or scripts can be changed as we'll find out here in a moment uh if that wasn't just some editor's little blop in there to just kind of cover things up for what's coming up you know if if you had taken out that last bit about the others are so shocked none of them can say anything at all if that was taken out it changes the whole ending of the story how so well, because he's just like, I have important work to do in the lab. Again, Brainiac's a jerk, not there's something wrong with Brainiac. But Brainiac's not a jerk. He is a jerk. He's always we've talked before about Brainiac as a jerk. You've talked about Brainiac as a jerk, and I've always disagreed. Well, Brainiac is a jerk. End of story. Um, let's get into a weirder story. The Arcturan Jewel Case, published March 1979, written by Paul Kupperberg with art by Joe Stanton. Synopsis, Chameleon Boy Tries to Unravel an Unsolvable Crime. This one's kind of creepy. Who wrote this one? Uh, this is Paul Kupperberg. Is, is this uh, a real, is this, is this a real guy or is this, um, is this Jerry Conway posing as someone else? No, Paul Kupperberg is a real human being. He's Alan Kupperberg's brother. Okay. Because it's an established uh, DC recover, uh, creator. We we I only say this because man, this is a borderline creepy story. In it's that, a it's an interesting story, honestly. I, I what do you of, find? Why do you say it's interesting? And I'll tell you why I find it extremely creepy. I feel like it's an interesting story just from the perspective of the first part of this issue was setting up. Ooh, something's creepy going on with Brainiac Five. This is hey. You guys remember that uh, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, Chameleon Boy is a super, super detective genius, right? Here's where we're going to show you that and make a big deal out of it. And then, of course, you know, it's vaguely clever the way he uses his powers to figure this one out. I have to admit, I kind of liked it. But, I, we, I, I but we've seen him do that before. We've, we've seen this before. Yes, the jewel case. Um, we've seen this before, though. Like when they were trying to get, I forget, it was like a bomb or something they were trying to get into... Uh, and it was on a pedestal and it was going was into Chameleon some chief chameleon, chameleon chief. chief of the legion of superhero or the legion of supervillains rather infiltrated legion superheroes as a pedestal. Oh, right, right. As a pedestal. And so it just, yeah. it, to me, it just was like, I think we've seen this routine before. I think we've seen this gimmick before. And so when we got to the end, I was like, well, yeah, you kind of knew as soon as he said, give the jewel that what was going to happen. And so I was kind of disappointed in, in the story in that way. Uh, I think, you know, maybe not showing what a genius that chameleon boy is, but rather how adaptable he is because he goes, oh, if I'm going to swim in the water, I need to be a carp. And, oh, this thing's shooting microwaves at me. So let me turn into this creepy bug. 
that actually feeds off microwaves. And let me dig underneath here until there's chemicals. And now I have to get out of here because I can't shift shift into anything that uh, can breathe these chemicals. Um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of cool to show, you know, his transformations, because we really honestly don't get to see a whole lot of transformations that uh, Chemical Boy does in or I'm not Chame- uh, Chameleon Boy does in these stories. Uh, we often see him maybe change into one thing or stretch out into a silly putty man. But rarely do we get to see him say, oh, I'm changing into this creature because of this or I'm changing into this creature because of this. So I like that part. But the part that is really creepy to me is we already know that Chameleon Boy, I keep saying, yeah, Chameleon Boy. I keep wanting to say Chemical Boy. Uh, But we know that uh, Chameleon Boy feels like he's so lonely uh, because there's no one else like him around except for R.J. Brand. And so when he meets, when he meets, well, we don't know that there's something wrong with uh, Brainiac 5 either. Uh, But when he meets a girl, the last time that he met a girl, he got really, really weird. And here he gets really, really weird. So, like, uh, we get to meet this ambassador woman who kind of reminds me. Gerald. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of uh, Star Trek, the motion picture girl. Except that <laughs> uh, she doesn't. Yeah, except that she doesn't have shrimp for ears. She has a fin on her head and shrimp for ears. Yes. Um, But then Chameleon Boy is like, well, hello, Ambassador. Please, maybe we should get together. And it's just like. She's totally into it, though. She's flirting back. Oh, I'm sure she's flirting back. But it just seems uh, very inappropriate, especially when we look at things today, that if some uh, person of, of status, an ambassador, were to walk into the room, the first thing that you say to the ambassador is, well, hello, uh, that would not fly in many instances. Um, and then it even gets a little weirder later on at the end of the issue when she's like, oh, man, I wish there was a better way that I could express my thanks. And he's like, I'm sure we could come up with something. Heart shaped balloon with the end uh, inside of it. And I, I think you're way too cynical on this. It's kind of sweet. I, I don't think so. I think that today, if this were things that were said with an ambassador that would not that would not fly uh especially no, in the, I, in the day of the me too well, but i think it's cute yes uh fine uh but I, I just think that in the age of me too this is this is something that would would not be appropriate and i'm very interested to see how as we move forward through these uh through the time how we see these things kind of change uh we have almost moved away from the this is a man's job kind of situations, although that still pops up a lot in the Legion. Uh, but there's still a lot, so much uh, sexism uh, that that runs runs throughout this uh, yeah. throughout this series. More than there used to be, which is kind of, you know, unusually telling for the state of the comic book industry, because in 1958, stuff that just went and flew right by us like Saturn Girl is the leader now feels weird and unlikely, you know, during the, oh, uh, during the first this time period the story. Yeah. Lightning lad yeah. is like, I'm, I'm the leader now. And he kind of looks to Saturn girl for help. And she's like, I'm not going to help you. Yeah. I already did this and it's multiple almost, times. Yeah. It almost feels like, well, there's no help from that girl. I don't know. The it, other thing that, that comes up in this issue is this idea that, uh, Gidelore, ladies' man, man of mystery, has um has stolen a bunch of components or something to create a super surveillance machine. And how I find it funny in the 30th uh, century that everyone is so freaked out about the surveillance state 
when you think about and again, uh, granted, this is uh, America, not the UK, but the UK probably around 79 or, or so was really amping up their their security, their um, ITV system or their CCTV system that they have. And so it's it's something that is very common, especially in London today. Um, but even then, if you go back and you look at and maybe this is something that they, they also don't connect with, is that during this time in the 1970s and 80s, Soviet Union and East Germany were super surveillance states. And there's no mention of, do you think that this is a bad thing to be a, you know, to spy on anyone is, is a bad thing, even though that's what you guys are trying to do here? And they're like, nah, no, nah, just just uh, find out who's who's stealing our technology. I found it very interesting. I, I wonder if there's kind of an underlying thought process that because of, you know, the Soviet Union and, and East Germany, that this is the problem. Because, I mean, Ambassador Relnick is worried about someone building the super spy monitor. He doesn't necessarily say that, you know, the United Planets wants to build it themselves. Um, but I think I mean, I read it as. I'm reading it as we probably are doing it. and We don't want anyone else to do it. <laughs> that Delor could fit the components together to make a super spy monitor. Yeah. And yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like once again, we may be using knowledge that we don't have at this point in the series, because it doesn't really seem to imply that in the story so much as. If Guy Delors has it, it would be bad for everyone. It's fun to speak in that accent. I don't know. I would. I honestly think that, and knowing how our current government systems work in the world, that if there is some cool super spy gadget, you know that you know MI6 and the CIA already have all these things, and Amazon and uh, um, um, what's the other one? Apple are all listening into our conversations, and we don't blink an eye about it. Uh, but you know, I'm I'm almost positive the science police are like. Oh, man, if Guy Delors uh, takes uh, this technology and people know about it, they're going to know that he got it from us and uh, we can't allow that to happen. So please, Legion, uh, help us. And oh, by the way, this ambassador says she's being blackmailed because she used to be a part of a terrorist group. Am, am I mistaken on that? Isn't, isn't that her deal? Is that she's like, I used to be a part of a terrorist group and now she I've reformed part of a, a youth organization. Oh, OK. She was part of a group of smugglers and she quit smuggling. So not necessarily flat out terrorism, but definitely, you know, some Han Solo stuff. Eh, so smugglers probably not that big of a deal as long as they're just doing uh, cigarettes and, uh, and, uh, un unlabeled whiskey, then, you know, th that, more, that kind of smuggling is like okay. Fireworks and, and, uh, Viagra pills probably. Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff's okay. But when they start uh, dealing with other type of stuff that they're smuggling, eh, you know, it gets a little questionable. As to whether she's a good person or not, but I guess uh, Cam is uh, totally into her, and yes. uh, these two are going to be a couple for like the next thirty or so issues. We're just going to see uh, these two making out in all sorts of of uh, fishy forms. I don't believe so. She does show up again. I mean, she becomes a recurring player. This is the first appearance of Gerald, uh, but I don't think that they ever officially become a couple. Although they do dance around it a little bit. At some point, does the universe end? And he's like, curses, not again. No. No, that's too bad. But you know what I really do like about this story? What? It's Joe Staten inking himself, and it's got this weird angular look to it 
that is really fun, especially Chameleon Boy's facial expressions and the moments where you're like, hey, uh, by the way, the science police, the last few issues, the science police have not been showing well of themselves. One of their own goes bad and tries to take over the world, and one of them's kicking people. It's just terrible. But throughout this story... I wonder if that's a commentary on police. Oh, I'm certain. That's one of the things that Jerry Conway, um, you know, did in his Spider-Man run, too, is, you know, uh, question authority. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily F-bomb the police, but definitely, you know, don't trust people implicitly. But, yeah, I really like the Staten art, especially the point where, you know, Chameleon Boy reveals that he is literally the jewel case. (laughs) I get it. That's the the name of the the pun. Yeah, that's the. We have a name drop. I like that. Yeah, you guys got it. Get it? It's a good, good looking story, even with shrimp ears. If you enjoy the show, we would appreciate your support. You can find out more and become a Legion Clubhouse member at patreon.com slash major spoilers. Legion Omnicon wrote to us, and, I, and I'm really glad that Legion Omnicon uh, has, uh, follows us and enjoys the show, or at least I hope he enjoys the show. Um, yeah. Or they, if she, whatever. Uh, because we were commenting on Slime Monster and what a horrible version of, of Slime Monster is. And he pointed out uh, that uh, Tom Beerbaum tried to do a tribute to the sewer creature from 248 and 249 in Legionnaires number three in the five years later run, which um, I don't know if it's the five years later run that he's referring to, because Legionnaires, I think, takes place after the reboot. No. That's when we get into the Archie Legion, right? No, uh, Legionnaires starts as a st- OK, so it gets complicated. But here's the thing. At the point that Legionnaires, the comic starts, it's actually the story of a younger cloned version of the then adult five years later Legion of Superior. Oh, okay. All right. That's so where, first, when I was reading, I was reading that issue and I was like, wait a minute, this doesn't seem, seem yeah. right. So okay. the first 10, 10 or 12 odd issues, I don't know how many it is. He'll tell us um, of that story are actually set in post crisis pre zero hour continuity. Yeah. So one of the interesting things that happens, especially after the crisis event, is this happens to all all titles going forward. So anytime that there is an event at DC, it's just like, let's just reset and retell all the same stories yeah, let's again. Break everything. It's fine. And and that's what they were doing in the Legionnaires. Uh, number three is that beer, beer bomb was trying to or buyer bomb is trying to pay tribute to that that slime monster one because he created this Mordecai creature that was in there. And, and uh, there's a quote here from this uh it's okay. Um, um, I'm a senator. Oh, I'm a senator. Okay, I was trying to say Itso uh, Kim Kima Senator. I didn't. Really... So anyway, it says, "quote The starting point for our Mordecai story was a challenge to ourselves to take one of the worst stories in Legion history, the Sewer Monster story from Super Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes number two forty nine. Shadow Lass is dead, and you, Sun Boy, will pay for her death." And see if we could do something, uh, do a similar story and turn it into a good, strong Legion tale. Now, I don't think I don't think I read any of the five year later stuff because it was just like, eh, that seems really dark and brooding kind of stuff. So I kind of passed on that and just jumped to the um, post zero hour uh, re- relaunch, reboot, retelling. And so I don't think I've ever read the Mordecai one, although I did when I looked at the article and I was looking at the um, the images, I was like, oh, yeah, this I, I recognize this creature. So maybe I did. I have read those. Uh, issues in the past it's possible um it's also an issue that's drawn by chris sprouse 
And uh, Chris Sprouse is a very, very good artist, but sometimes uh, he will have uh, designs that resemble something else that he's previously done. So that Mordecai creature actually looks a little bit like when Chris Sprouse uh, draws Block. Block, yeah, yeah, yeah. But with a weird uh, symbol on his chest. So there you go. Thank you, Legion Omnicon, for uh, pointing that out to us. And uh, there you go, dear listener. Now you know that the Swamp Monster uh, Sewer Monster will live on in the future. And we're going to revisit this story in the future. Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, number 250. This is the day the universe dies. Published April 1979. Written by Jim Starlin as Steve Apollo on plot. With Paul Levitz on script. Art by Jim Starlin and Dave Hunt. Synopsis. Who killed Arend? All right, we are now into the big anniversary issue. And this one is written by Steve Apollo, did the plot on this, with Paul Levitz, uh, you know, doing some magical work. And then we get Jim Starlin back and Dave Hunt doing the art on this. So, hey, look, everybody, Jim Starlin's back. I don't know who this Steve Apollo guy is, uh, but he apparently uh, has figured out what is wrong with Brainiac 5. Also, uh, Jim Starlin believes that uh, Chameleon Boy has the largest ears in the entire universe. <laughs> I know his ears are literally the size of his head. It's amazing. No, like almost a, a head and a half is how tall they are. They, th- I did look at the previous issue. They are a little big, but here they are ginormous. Well, he's a shapeshifter. He can make them as big or as small as he wants. Well, you'd think Maybe. with those big ears, he would hear uh, his foe approaching who is going to zap him and knock him out. You'd think if he was such a bright detective, he wouldn't just sit there and wait until his foe shot him with a with a patoom gun. Um, yeah, but, you gotta know. watch out for those patoom guns. Also, you probably ought to question why your supervillain changes the color of his costume uh, from the last time that we saw him to now. Well, because the last time we saw him, he was wearing like yellow and brown and green, and now he's wearing all blue. This is a variant figure. Um, oh, you know, okay. For, for the action figure market. That's what it is. Um, yeah. But you know, what? you know what's interesting about this issue? The death of Anne Rand is finally solved. Anne Reed, first of all. And yes and no, and mostly no, but partly yes. You know what's interesting? You know, here, let me just jump ahead and interrupt you really quick. I guess they do kind of say, hey, remember this happened back in issue 239. Mm-hmm. But they they spend more time on catching you up to speed on this than they did from a comic from 12 years ago. Well, that's because the comic from 12 years ago didn't really have much point. I mean, it didn't really have anything other than here's a guy who has a grudge against the Legion, whereas this has been... This is what about a guy who has... part of a year, yeah. Yeah, this is all about a guy who has a grudge against the Legion. This guy. This guy is a big secret. We don't know who he is. He's under a mask. And... You know, thanks to some scheduling issues due to the DC implosion, um, this story was supposed to have come out several, several months ago. Yeah. And that's where we get into the story of uh, Steve Apollo. Mm. Okay. So Steve Apollo is not his his true name. That's why you probably won't see him on too many other comics. Well, you'll see him in the next issue. Steve Apollo uh, pops up in the next issue. But um, this is actually Jim Starlin. Jim Starlin wrote uh, the story. And then what ended up happening is that, uh, well, he left Marvel 
and then uh, Archie Goodwin. No, um, Archie Goodwin was over at Marvel. Then Al Milgram over at DC was like, hey, we're open for pitches. And so Jim Starlin laid out like this 34 page story uh, for issue 239, which we which we saw. Mm-hmm. And Paul Levitt's writing the script on that. Um, but then what ended up happening is they went in and changed. It was supposed to be a double sized issue. Number one, not right. a supersized issue. But then they're right. like, well, we're going to split this up and we're going to go in and we're going to change the story itself. We th- right. we're going to throw out some like pages, 20 pages out of 64. Yeah. And uh, Paul Levitz was just like, no, we're going to we're going to have to change this and, and rework it and tweak it just a little bit so that it uh, it's the way that I want it to be, not the way that you, Jim Starlin, wanted it to be. And then Jim Starlin was like, how dare you? And uh, so he said, take my take my name off as the writer. And, and instead of using, you know, the um, uh, the fake director's name that we see all the time for people Alan who don't Smithy. want. Yeah. Alan Smithy that we don't want to see um, who directed it. Uh, he went with Steve Apollo as uh, as the plotter uh, uh, for this. So and also it's listed as the layouts as well, which is Jim Starlin. Right. Right. He did. He did basically the art with finishes by Dave Hunt, who and he was, I guess, also job. upset. I guess he was also upset about some of the stuff that Jim Hunt did um, to his layouts that he didn't like. Mm-hmm. And so he that was also a uh, reason why he was upset about that. Yeah. And I mean, it, it makes sense up to a degree. If you know about Starlin, Starlin is definitely one of those guys who believes in the auteur theory of comics. If you go and look at his work on things like Warlock or the Infinity, anything, you know, the stuff that Starlin does is very much Starlin. Mm-hmm. And the way this story plays out is very much not Starlin. I mean, uh, I mean he it- had written a 64-page story uh, for a book that then got canceled. And when they finally print this, only about 42 of those pages actually make it. I can't necessarily blame him if one-third of what you put together was chopped out in, in saying, this is not the story that I created. This is not what I want to, you know, not something I'm going to put my name on. Oh, I can, I can certainly see that. I also think that someone who thinks mighty highly of himself that he can't be edited. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's a thing too. Yeah. Uh, if you actually look at his later work for Marvel, when he starts coming back and doing, you know, little short stories, he tends to be his own. Uh, he basically writes draws inks edits everything he likes to do all of his own thing so i can see it i can definitely see it being an issue yeah uh, so chameleon boy is is taken down and wildfire knows what's going on because he knows that these two have been talking with one another off panel for the last year year and a half and so he knows who did it and weirdly his face visor turns into a skull which this is not the first time that a skull has appeared on his face. And I'm pretty sure at some point in the future, doesn't he change his visor to be more face like at some point in the in the far future? Um, not too far out. He's actually going to learn how to make a solid body that has a face. Ah, OK, maybe that's what I'm thinking of, because every yeah, time I see this, I'm like his, the design of his visor does change several times. Right now he's in the wrap around flat visor at some point mm-hmm. he gets a very domed visor mm-hmm. yeah i just but i just always every time that i see that little skull face show up in his visor i'm thinking oh man he's got a really tiny skeleton and he's pushing that skeleton all the way to the front to freak everybody <laughs> out and he does because I've, he says because he says one of us 
is a murderer. And every single person in the panel has this shocked expression, except for Brainiac 5, who's smiling, which I have no idea why he would be smiling. Yeah, it's not like there's something wrong with Brainiac 5. Well, yeah, because then the bad guy shows up and Brainiac 5 is just standing there. But, you know, later in the issue, when he talks about uh, Omega, his visor all of a sudden shows a uh-huh. massive explosion, which yeah, yeah. makes me wonder if, if he doesn't Starlin have the ability to just, do that. I'm wondering if, if Starlin is just doing visual effects or if he actually thinks that Brainiac 5's visor is a TV screen. That would be interesting if it because was. Because he's talking about at one point about, yeah, the Omega is coming here to destroy uh-huh. the universe. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Hey, look, there's Tyrock. Tyrock is here and he gets a line. He actually appears in, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six panels in this in this issue. And a reflection. Don't forget the reflection. Uh, did I get him in the reflection? I may have already gotten him in the reflection, but yeah, I, I find it, uh, it's like Tyrock, you come in to say one line and then that's it. And then they realize that this uh, blue guy is just a, just a, uh, hologram until, um, you know, they realize that this is Brainiac 5's doing all along. He has created this creature called Omega that's going to destroy the entire universe. Yeah, it's, it's pretty shocking. Although I do love the fact that, Brainiac is standing there being normal Brainiac 5, and as soon as they say, oh my gosh, Brainiac 5 is as mad as a Tresselgonian dementialist, whatever. Oh, they mentioned, they mentioned a couple of, they mentioned a couple of times different takes on crazy things. And then he immediately gets crazy, wacky Charles Manson hair for the rest of the issue. I mean, it is just... His face also, his also, it looks like his face goes from that thin face to like a Hulk face, which I guess is the, um you know, key keywording for the Hulk, you know, that you you're out of control. So I find that very interesting, but the, the I, here's the best part of this entire issue, ladies and gentlemen, it's the bit that made me laugh out loud. And I hope everybody who reads this issue is laughing out loud. He basically is like, I've had enough of you people. I can't stand you. And because I've had all this hate building up over all these years, I'm going to go destroy the universe. So even as we speak, he's walking across the stars towards Earth and you can't stop him. The Omega will seize the secret and destroy us all. And in that moment, I shall have my revenge. And then everybody, there's just this big panel of everybody just speechless looking at him. And then Wildfire <laughs> is like, okay, listen, here's what we're going to do. It is, the, <laughs> it is the funniest part of this whole issue where everyone's just like, all right, this guy's nuts. Let's just, let's just it, take care of this problem. It really feels like a big, uh... <laughs> I, I, I'm, sure it's supposed to, I'm sure it's supposed to be one of these moments where you just like, look at the reaction on their right. faces. But then, no, because I think it's because of the way it's laid out. Had they put that panel on the previous page below uh, Brainiac having this freak out and having this big monologue, I think there would have uh-huh. been some bigger impact, but because right. you got the, on the next page, you get the, everybody's like stoic. And then wildfire is like, okay, listen, here's what we're going to do. Uh, we don't have any more time to waste on this nonsense. And then everybody breaks into action. And I just, I really wanted just another reaction shot of Brainiac going, why aren't you paying attention to me, to me? Um, but we don't have time for that because they all have to race off and fight the Omega. Meanwhile, dream girl, whose dreams are never accurate. Is right. like, I've just had a vision that you're going to die here and the whole planet is going to explode when you face Omega. Well, uh, if that's the way it's got to be, that's the way it's got to be. The end, question mark? Three question marks. Uh, the thing that I really appreciate during that panel that you mentioned is everybody is doing their dramatic faces. Everybody's got their game face on, except yeah. for Timberwolf. 
And Timberwolf at this point doesn't generally have yes, he, pupils. But <laughs> yeah, someone right. has drawn pupils on for Timberwolf and he's got this get a load of this guy. Face. Well it's yeah, so it's like, he's, like is everybody else seeing this bull? Yeah, he's looking yeah. around like uh this guy what you can, know, he's trying I to judge everyone else's re- he's trying to judge everyone else's reaction. Which, you know, that is the thing. Why didn't somebody just punch Brainiac Five out at that moment? I mean, literally they scatter and Brainiac 5 is still doing whatever Brainiac 5 is doing. We'll have to wait until the next issue uh, to find out. Yeah. So I, I know what happens to Brainiac 5. One of the things that. No, they just let him walk around. Yeah. One of the things that disappears in the, in the breakdown of this 64 page story into these two issues is we literally go from Brainiac raging to Brainiac disappearing and all the Legionnaires just going and then wildfire walking off dramatically. Brainiac just disappears. Yeah. Where it's really is Brainiac? Weird. And it I got to tell you, so maybe it would be nice. I, I don't know if anyone out there has the original script to this. I would be fascinated to read the, incre- the, the Jim Starlin huge arc that he wrote for this, including the stuff that's all taken out because there's a thing that happens in the next issue that kind of comes out of left field as far as the, how do you do it kind of, of moment. And I kind of want to, see what those missing pages were so that I can see was this this device that was used to create Omega was it referenced sooner than the moment where the Brainiac 5 is just like oh yeah use this <laughs> no not really and the thing that's really interesting is uh, we'll, we'll get to it next time but the way that it ends oh yeah no there's a really much, interesting way for this ends yeah yeah it it, it feels very weird but again we're, that's next time I know we're teasing you for what's coming up so ooh, ooh, ooh. stick around ooh, for that ooh. and an old legionnaire comes back you guys oh that's right and also something bad happens to him as well so you're gonna have to stick around so just just wait and see That brings us to the end of another Legion Clubhouse. Thank you, everybody, for joining us this week. Matthew, what did we learn? We learned that Brainiac 5 is so evil that he apparently has uh, Tharok's face, and he just wears it around the headquarters as some sort of, uh, I don't know, helmet. We also learned that there was a comic book shop in Salina in 1983. And we learned that Steven is both mean and also (laughs) cruel. Thank you very much, everybody, for uh, joining us uh, this month. I cannot wait to unleash the Omega Monster on Matthew in the near future. Uh, But until then, remember uh, that you can support us over on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash major spoilers. And until next time, I am the cool guy. And I'm here's looking at you, kid. The Legion Clubhouse is a production of Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC, and is produced by Steven Schleicher. Your hosts were Matthew Peterson and Steven Schleicher. You can follow Matthew at Mighty King Cobra and Steven at Major Spoilers. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Legion Clubhouse. If you have questions or comments, send them to podcast at Majorspoilers.com. I'm Jason Inman. Until next time, eat it, Grandpa. This podcast is copyright 2021 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC.